Hey everyone, welcome back to my podcast, Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Sullivan, and I am coming to you from the suburbs of Philadelphia where I teach Anatomy and Physiology at Bucks County Community College. So welcome back. Uh, We are still in the nervous system, but we are toward the end with the last topic of the nervous system, sensation. Uh, In this episode, we're going to specifically focus on general sensation, uh, somatic senses, and we will cover the special senses in another episode. And those special senses would be things like vision, hearing, balance and equilibrium, taste and smell. The general senses is uh, focused on touch, pressure, temperature, things like that. So, so we'll get into that uh, in this episode. And um, I want to just start off by kind of introducing sensation. And then we are going to listen to a conversation I had with a good friend of mine who teaches anatomy and physiology at Moravian University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Her name is Dr. Krista Rompalski. And uh, I think you're going to enjoy that conversation. But first, just a quick little thing about sensation. Keep in mind that a sensory experience begins when a stimulus triggers a sensory receptor. Without the receptor, there really is nothing to receive in terms of a sensation. But then our experience of that sensation is rooted in our brain as we perceive the sensation so that we can record that experience as a memory. And it gets real, real complicated after that because not all sensations are perceived. And so we're not aware of all of the different things that trigger sensory receptors in our bodies. Um, But we are aware of a lot of them and we can perceive visual input. We can perceive when we touch something how it feels. So that's kind of an interesting way to start. But before we get into that, but before we get into that, um, I want you to listen to my conversation with Dr. Rumpolsky. It was really, really interesting. She's an amazing instructor up there in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and a good friend. So um, without further ado, let's listen to that conversation. Okay, so welcome, Dr. Rumpolsky. How are you doing? I'm great, Steve. How are you doing? So you teach A&P, you teach anatomy and physiology, and you're at Moravian College in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, right? Yes, I am. Um, uh, I was brought on as a physical therapy faculty member for a brand new program. I will be the gross anatomy teacher, neuroanatomy teacher, pathophysiology teacher, and I'll be co-teaching exercise physiology for our graduate physical therapy students. So will you be dissecting cadavers? Um, we do not have a cadaver lab at Moravian. We have an anatomage table. So I've, you know, had the privilege to, you know, move into the, the virtual space with that. But um, I still do. I have several years of dissection under my belt from my previous institution and have been fortunate enough to still maintain an adjunct position there to help with prosections. So I've you know, been lucky enough to still have access to an anatomy lab with so many of my colleagues that work at those. That's cool. So we have, um, so the episode that um, I'm working on today is about sensation and sense organs. Do you have a favorite thing about, about sensation or sense organs that you like to teach about? You know, to us, everything's exciting. But I think as students, the general sense um, stuff, particularly like all the different types of tactile receptors, 
can both be, there's so much overlap between them that they struggle with organizing them. And then I think just sensation in general is difficult for them, difficult for them to understand because you're taking a mechanical stimulus and, or, you know, a chemical stimulus and somehow turning it into a nerve signal. And they struggle enough with just how do I, what is a resting membrane potential? What is an action potential? how, you know, the concept that tracks in the, in the, in the spinal cord are somehow bundles of axons of neurons. Like it's, it's such an abstract thing for them because you can't, they can't dissect out the spinal cord and see all those axons and, and things like that. Um, so I think that just the general concept of how something gets perceived in the brain is, is a very difficult thing for them. So I really like to start out, I think, you know, you're very similar with this, with a story of something clinical or something, something abnormal, um, you know, for example, like some of the um, disorders where um, someone can ignore the whole like left side of their body or right side of their body and not perceive them. Essentially where someone will have that hemi neglect of half of their body. They don't sense it. They don't feel it. They don't dress it. They don't, it's unbelievable. So then they're like, wow. So sensation is completely in the brain. I'm like, yes. So I think that you can make it exciting talking about that everything, whether pain, temperature, pressure, everything is in the brain and everything is interpreted through many other filters of emotion and life experience. So another example would be, you know, when I get a massage, like if they're not giving all of their body weight through an elbow into my quad, I don't feel like I'm getting something, but you know, my husband can barely stand, (laughs) you know, the slightest, uh, you know, a half a pound of pressure and to him that's pain, but to me it's relief. So, you know, that, that's another example of, of giving them an idea of how much sensation is very relative and very, very complex in the brain. So I think if you start with that and then kind of work with the smaller details, they get more interested in learning those smaller details. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of difficulty, I think it's both memorization, you know, of course, of those small things, but just getting interested in it in the first place and why it's relevant and why it's so cool. There's a great book by Oliver Sacks called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Yeah, and you know, and Oliver Sacks actually had these conditions. Um, So for any listeners out there who don't know who Oliver Sacks is, look him up. There's a documentary about him out now on Netflix, I believe. And if you're a Radio Lab listener, which is one of my favorite shows on on NPR, Um, He was a frequent contributor to that before he passed away a few years ago. And um, Oliver Sacks is the doctor who wrote the book that the movie Awakenings was based on. I didn't know that. And and, um, I think it was Robin Williams played Oliver Sacks in that movie. Oh, I have to watch that. So he's a favorite of mine because if you're interested in neurology, he not only was a neurologist, but he had these conditions. He tells a great story one time, and I don't want to make this too long on me, but he was he was having dinner in a restaurant in Manhattan where he lived, and um, and there was someone in the someone from outside was staring at him eat through the window while he was eating, and he and the person wouldn't leave, and he complained to the waiter in the restaurant said, "Can you please ask that person to stop watching me eat through the window?" And it was his own reflection because he didn't recognize but he didn't, it. He had he had face blindness. So he didn't recognize his own reflection. That is prosopagnosia. In there. 
That's prosopagnosia. That's prosopagnosia. Yes. Yeah. But I find that to be crazy interesting. So you you brought up a good point that I want to I want to ask you in more detail on. Maybe you can talk a little bit more um, on the uh, subjectiveness of pain and what nociceptors really are. Oh, on the spot. Um, Oops, sorry. <laughs> uh, well, no, no, it's okay. I mean, nociceptors are you know essentially free nerve endings and um, designed to pick up you know unpleasant stimulus. Now what, what, how we, how we perceive that stimulus as unpleasant is so complex and largely, I think, informed by our life experience of those and our attention as well. Um, so, I mean, I don't even know where to start, but, you know, for example, we all know that something doesn't hurt as much if you don't see it coming. Right. But if you're preparing, like you're about to get a shot or you're about to get, you know, you know, something's coming, your sympathetic nervous system, you know, is primed and we are ready to experience that pain. So I think a lot of pain is also attention focused. And I think where chronic pain comes in, you know, where people can't escape these loops is that their life gradually becomes about the experience and prevention and management of that pain. So, you know, just to give an example, um, you know, because we could talk about pain, you know, you could do a whole year of podcasting about pain, but um, I tore my, um, well, we can argue it wasn't my patellar ligament or my patellar tendon, um, but the band of tissue that connects the inferior pole of my patella to my tibial tuberosity, I partially tore that in 2014. I did not get out of the pain loop until last year. I, and I had done multiple, I had done platelet rich plasma therapy injections, a stem cell therapy injection, um, hydrolysis of the fat pad behind the tendon to try to separate the nerves innervating the tendon. Um, I mean, copious amounts of physical therapy. And my life became about when I step off this curb, is my knee going to hurt? It, it all consumed. And not until I started seeing, um, I'll, I'll just plug her because she hasn't phenomenal program called Power Over Pain. Um, a physical therapist at Drexel, Dr. Sarah Wenger, she's been interviewed by the APTA multiple times. She does, she has a whole program about like reclaiming your life, either living with it or trying different strategies to manage it, especially when, you know, the, the physical signs of inflammation at the tissue level are gone, but the brain is still perceiving that pain. And where patients can then feel very dismissed by their doctors when their doctors say, well, there's nothing there, there's nothing wrong. So, you know, I did not get out of that pain loop until I stopped focusing on it. And that sounds overly simplistic, but just to give some examples of things I did or exercises I did were to, she said, look at other people's knees, look at magazine pictures of knees, think about your other knee. Like try to distract your brain from that knee wherever you possibly can and reframe the pain as your body trying to tell you something rather than, oh God, it's wrong again. And, you know, to give everyone else an example of like how you can get stuck with chronic pain is that, you know, say you, you wake up, you've never injured your shoulder in your life, right? Never had a problem, never had a pain. You wake up one day and your shoulder hurts. You're, you're going to say like, hmm must've done something, must've slept funny. You're not going to think much about it. You're going to assume it goes away. But if you injured your knee five years ago and you wake up one day and you experience that same pain, a thousand alarm bells are going to go off in your head 
because you have all of your memories, you know, and all of the, you know, the intense emotional connections to those memories. Thank you, limbic system, right? Um, set up to start making you feel very alarmed and heightened. So, so much of pain is peppered by our life experience, you know, think, um, everything we have to manage around it, our memories, you know, it's, it's just so complex. So I don't know if that was a good answer to your question or not, but like clearly, you know, pain is not pain. That was perfect because I think the other thing, there's a couple of things that you touched on that I try to focus on with my students. And I'm going to talk about, um, when I get deeper into these episodes about the nervous system is what a collaborative effort, every sensation, every perception, every experience is among the nervous system in general. Um, so it's, um, it's big. And then also, um, the fact that I see a lot of textbooks, um, they call nociceptors pain receptors. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a big fan of that terminology because like they're, there really, there is no pain out there. You don't walk in and bump into some pain in the living room. Right. What they're, they're, they're tissue damage receptors. They're, right. they're, they, they detect chemicals released by damaged tissues. And then our brains perceive a level of discomfort right. that is subjective. Yeah, think about what what's the saying at the gym? No pain, no gain. Like when you go and lift weights to max, it hurts, but it's a positive but it's, we frame it as a positive experience, you know? So that's just a great, that came to mind. And it's also an alarm. Right. Right. So, so a lot of times um, people will just address the symptom of pain rather than actually addressing the cause. Right. And it's like taking the batteries out of your smoke detector. Thanks for sharing personal stories also. Um, You know, so I think that's really important. And, um, but, and this was a lot of fun. It was good to see you on zoom. We have gotten to zoom a little bit and you and I have been friends for a while now. And, and, uh, and I really appreciate you joining me for, for the podcast. Thanks, Steve. If I, if I may mention, if any students feel like, um, following me, um, I do, a I have an Instagram account. It's primarily education based. Um, and it's just, um, at anat with me instead of anatomy. So A-N-A-T-W-I-T-H-M-E and then MOCO, M-O-C-O for Moravian College. If anyone, I share some studying strategies. I'm very transparent with students about mental health and anxiety because I think that's the only way that they feel destigmatized from experiencing is seeing that we all do too and went through the same things. Um, You know, I do a lot of motivational stuff with students, you know, and then there'll be a you know, personal anecdote here and there, but for the most part, it's very focused on my students. Yes, I am a follower of that. And I, I can agree. I'll tell you what, I will, um, I will make sure to put that information in the episode information that people can click right on it. So thanks so much, Krista. Thanks, Steve. That was so interesting. I loved to hear the stories about the chronic pain um, and how pain is such a different experience than other sensations. Um, that part I thought was really interesting. And I want to thank Krista for joining me and sharing uh, all of those stories. But now it's time to get into the sensation as a topic so that we can help you get your beer better in AMP. So again, like I said before, the sensory experience begins with triggering a sensory receptor. And anatomically, those sensory receptors could be the dendrites of a sensory neuron, or they could be their own separate cells that then have to synapse with a sensory neuron. 
So when that's the case, that receptor is called a separate cell, right? Makes sense. It's a separate cell than the sensory neuron, so we call it a separate cell. And we only see separate cells in a few different examples. Um, the receptors for taste, which we call gustation. Vision, we call them photoreceptors. So the receptors for taste are called gustatory receptors. Hearing, we call them auditory receptors. And balance and equilibrium, we call them proprioceptors. So those are the only scenarios where we have separate cells. Everywhere else, including olfactory, which is smell, is going to be the dendrite of the sensory neuron that will serve as the sensory receptor. Now remember that neurons are electrically excitable and they have to maintain a resting membrane potential. Sensory receptors are the same. Like this is especially pertinent to sensory receptors. And those sensory receptors, they also have gated ion channels that are stimulated to open by specific stimuli. And so remember gated ion channels. If you go way back to earlier episodes when we talked about the plasma membrane of the cell, that the plasma membrane is not permeable to ions. So they can't cross the plasma membrane on their own. So they require the assistance of a membrane protein called a channel protein. Many of those channel proteins are gated. They're, they have gates on them, they're closed, and there are stimuli that will open those gates to allow the ions to flow down their concentration gradient so that the net movement of ions is from an area of high concentration to an area of low concentration. Right, that's really important because when those ions do that, that's a whole lot of like charges flowing in the same direction, and that will change the membrane potential from resting to an excited or inhibited membrane potential, depending on which ions move. So that's a really important concept to recall from the earlier episodes talking about the plasma membrane and membrane proteins. So having said that, when a modality-gated ion channel is stimulated to open, the ions are going to diffuse down their concentration gradient and provoke what's called a local potential in the receptor. So the membrane potential becomes a local potential. Now, when we say modality gated, that means that these gates could be opened by either a mechanical stimulus, like touching it, a ligand or ligand gated stimulus, which means a chemical stimulates a receptor on the ion channel and that opens the gates, or a voltage stimulus. So they could be voltage-gated ion channels, which means changes in the membrane potential can trigger the opening of that gate. So that's a really important thing to remember because different gated ion channels are going to result in different changes in membrane potential. All right, so if the receptor is the dendrite of a sensory neuron, the change in potential that's generated or created by the stimulus is called a generator potential. So local potential is the general term. A local potential happens in a specific piece of the plasma membrane. An ion channel opens. Ions either flow in or flow out. And depending on what kind of ions they are, positively charged or negatively charged, that is going to change the resting membrane potential to a local potential. It might go up or it might go down. Now remember, for a neuron for a sensory receptor and a neuron, the resting membrane potential is minus 70 millivolts. A local potential could make it less negative, moving up towards zero, 
or it could make it more negative going down even below minus 70. All right, so that's an important thing to remember about local potentials. We'll talk about why in a little bit. But a local potential could be excitatory, meaning it becomes less negative, closer to zero, or inhibitory, meaning it becomes more negative, even further from zero. Important thing to remember. Now, if you remember from the action potential episodes when we talked about action potentials and nerve signals, that we're trying to reach what's called threshold. Threshold is the point at which voltage-gated ion channels open. All right, so now, if the sensory receptor is not the dendrite of the sensory neuron, it's a separate cell, we call that local potential a receptor potential, not a generator potential, a receptor potential. And we only see that in four scenarios. Taste, vision, hearing, and equilibrium. Those are the four scenarios where we use receptor potentials instead of generator potentials. So this action, the creation of a local potential, takes the mechanical, the ligand, or the voltage-gated ion channels stimulus, that, that energy, and converts it to electrical energy. Right? That is called transduction. We transduce whatever stimulus generated that reaction into electrical energy, meaning we change the membrane potential, the electrical potential of the membrane. If the local potential is excitatory and the membrane potential becomes less negative, moves closer to zero, it might hit that threshold. If it does, that threshold is the voltage that stimulates the opening of voltage-gated ion channels, right? So review the, the episode that I talked about local potentials, action potentials, and things like that, and you'll, you'll understand that if you haven't already. So we've reached threshold, and now we create a, an action potential that results in a nerve signal that can now travel the length of the sensory neuron and make its way to the central nervous system. We tend to think of sensation as something we're consciously aware of, but like I said before, we also have sensory receptors for blood pressure or chemical composition of our body fluids and other subconscious conditions, things that we're not consciously aware of. Those sensory nerve signals only travel to the lower parts of our central nervous system, and responses to them are controlled without our conscious awareness. This is why you're not necessarily aware of mild changes in your heart rate or blood pressure throughout the day, which happens. Right? Our heart rate kind of fluctuates. We have an average. Our blood pressure fluctuates. We have an average. Our glucose levels fluctuate, but we have an average. We're not aware of the sensory receptors that are responding to changes and fluctuations in those conditions. Our body takes care of them for us, and we don't even have to know about it. So we're not consciously aware of every single sensation. However, for the sensations that we are aware of, the nerve signals travel to the cerebrum of the brain. Our ability to identify the stimulus is tied to the specificity of the receptors. So remember, the brain is going to get nerve signals. That's it. Changes in membrane potential that travel along the neuron, synapse in different parts of the brain and get to the cerebrum, and then that's what we get. So how do we know that a sensation is what it is? How do we know that when we touch something, it was warm or cold or rough or smooth because of the sensory receptors that were triggered? The sensory receptors are modality-specific. Thermoreceptors only respond to temperature. Photoreceptors only respond to light, etc. So our brain knows what kind of sensation to, for you to perceive 
because of the type of sensory receptor that sent the nerve signal to the cerebrum. The brain can also pinpoint the part of the body the stimulus took place in because its nerve signal travels to a specific location on the cerebral neocortex. Remember that the postcentral gyrus of the parietal lobe stores a map of the body. The sensory nerve signals from a specific region of the body is relayed by the thalamus to a specific spot on that postcentral gyrus. So even though the message is always the same, a nerve signal, it's the messenger itself and the signal's central nervous system destination that allows the brain to perceive the sensation accurately. The other thing that we become aware of is the intensity of the sensation, how strong the sensation is. And that's determined by the number of nerve signals arriving at the central nervous system, whether it is in succession, rapid fire, or all at the same time. The, a weaker stimulus may only stimulate the most sensitive receptors, while a stronger stimulus stimulates those and the less sensitive receptors at the same time. So that results in multiple signals reaching the central nervous system, and we perceive that as a more intense stimulus. Now, like I said earlier, sensations divide into two categories, and most of that is because of the location of the receptors. So we have the special senses that we talked about before. Those are the ones centered around your head and face, vision, hearing, balance and equilibrium, smell and taste. And then we also have the general senses, and that's basically everything else. And the general senses are divided into the somatic senses, which innervate the skin, mucous membranes, bones, joints, muscles, and tendons, and the visceral senses, which innervate the internal organs and the blood vessels. Another way to classify sensory receptors by location is whether they respond to external stimuli or internal stimuli. The ones that respond to external stimuli we call exteroreceptors. Exteroreceptors from the general senses are found in the skin and the mucous membranes. Also, all of the special senses are exteroreceptors, smell, taste, vision, hearing, and equilibrium. Interoreceptors innervate the walls of our visceral organs and the blood vessels. They respond to internal stimuli. And we also have proprioceptors, and they are found within the skeletal muscles, the tendons, and the joint capsules, and they respond to stimuli associated with the position of our limbs, limb movement, and the degree of tension and stretch in our skeletal muscles. We can also classify sensory receptors based on the modality of the stimulus they respond to. Uh, for the most part, the names of these receptors will give you most of the information you need to know. For example, chemoreceptors respond to chemical stimuli. Uh, chemicals could be odorant molecules that stimulate our sense of smell, um, the chemical composition of our blood, which includes oxygen, glucose, pH, and carbon dioxide levels. Those are just a few. We also have tastants, which are chemicals that stimulate our gustatory or taste receptors. Thermoreceptors respond to changes in temperature. Think thermometer, right? When it's cold, you feel cold. When it's warm, you feel warm. These are mostly in the skin, but they're also in the hypothalamus, which helps regulate your body temperature. Mechanoreceptors are found mostly in the skin, and they respond to mechanical stimuli like touch, stretch, vibration, and pressure. There are various kinds of mechanical stimuli, and they fall under this category. Proprioceptors are mechanoreceptors, for example. Baroreceptors, 
baroreceptors respond to changes in pressure, like blood pressure. They are mechanoreceptors, tactile receptors for touch. Even hearing uses mechanoreceptors that are stimulated by waves of fluid in the ear's cochlea. Another specific one is photoreceptors. We only have photoreceptors in the eye, specifically in the retina of the eye, which is the nerve tissue that's in the back of your eye. They're stimulated by light reflected by an object or emitted by a light source. These receptors begin the process of eventually perceiving a visual image from the light that enters your eyes through your pupils and makes its way to the retina. And then we also have nociceptors. These are interesting, and we talked about this a little bit in my conversation earlier today. Nociceptors are sometimes referred to as pain receptors, but I don't really like that particular nomenclature because pain is not a tangible stimulus. They really respond to injured or damaged tissues, right? And then those damaged injured tissues release chemicals that then stimulate nociceptors. And then when the nerve signal gets to your brain, you perceive that as discomfort or pain, right? Pain is uncomfortable so that we're alerted to a harmful stimulus or an injury and are urged to address it. We don't want to ignore it because it could mean that something's really wrong. Nociceptors are not only stimulated by chemicals released by damaged tissue, they're stimulated by excessive stretching of a skeletal or a smooth muscle or ischemia, which is a lack of blood flow to a tissue which can lead to hypoxia, which is a lack of oxygen. The neural pathways associated with nociception then lead our brain to perceive the discomfort as we know as pain. The perception of a sensory stimulus in the skin is only as precise as the number of sensory neurons that innervate the region. This is referred to as the receptive field. So when you think about a receptive field, think about an area of your skin and how many sensory neurons innervate that particular area. If it's only one sensory neuron for maybe a square centimeter of your skin, then anywhere you touch on that square centimeter, your brain will perceive it as the exact same location. So if you took two pins and put them half a centimeter apart in that receptive field and touched your skin, you would only perceive it as one pin because you're limited to the number of sensory receptors that innervate that region. And again, we call that the neuron's receptive field. And this is because the postcentral gyrus of the parietal lobe, which is the primary somatosensory cortex, is mapped out in such a way that the brain can locate a stimulus based on that region. And that map on the postcentral gyrus, called a homunculus, tells you where that stimulus came from. So when we do that test with two pins and we try to see how far apart you can identify two different stimuli, we call that two-point discrimination. It's a little test you can do, and sometimes you'll see this in an anatomy and physiology lab. It's a pretty cool little test you can do because it's a little freaky. We have the most sensory precision in areas like our fingertips, the soles of our feet, our lips, our tongue, and our genitals. Those are the areas that are the most sensitive to tactile sensations. And so, since we have the most sensory neurons per area in those structures, we have the smallest receptive fields. The smaller the receptive field, the more precise the stimuli you can perceive. The larger the receptive field, the less precise. 
All right, so let's talk about the uh, somatosensory projection pathways, which is the neural pathway that the sensation takes from the receptor to the uh, cerebrum so that we can perceive it. So remember, the local potential created stays where it is. It has to lead to threshold so that an action potential uh, is generated and then that action potential becomes a nerve signal that makes its way along the sensory neuron to the central nervous system. Because soma means body, sensory nerve signals from the skin, bones, joints, mucous membranes, muscles, and tendons are referred to as the somatic senses. When the sensory receptor is stimulated, the gated ion channels open and a local potential occurs. In the somatic sensory receptors, this is a generator potential. Remember, this is the dendrite of the sensory neuron. It's not a separate cell in these examples. If it reaches threshold, then we get the nerve signal running along the axon of the sensory neuron. For most sensations, it takes three neurons to get a nerve signal from sensory receptor to the brain's cerebral neocortex. And we call the peripheral sensory neuron the first order neuron in this pathway. Three neurons, first order neuron, second order neuron, third order neuron. Let's use nociception as the sensation as an example. And this results in the perception of pain, but remember that this is the projection pattern for somatic sensations. We're just using a general example. The first order neuron is gonna to run toward the central nervous system and synapse with an interneuron in the spinal cord or brainstem. That interneuron is the second order neuron. Second order neurons decussate to the contralateral side of the spinal cord or brainstem, meaning that they're gonna cross the midline. This could happen in the spinal cord or the brainstem, like I said, and depending on which ascending pathway it is, that will determine which one, spinal cord or brainstem. Remember the spinal tracts that we talked about in a previous episode. Nociception uses the spinothalamic tract, which decussates immediately in the spinal cord. If the synapse generates a nerve signal in the second order neuron, that nerve signal travels toward the brain and synapses with the third order neuron in the diencephalon's thalamus. The signal is then routed by the thalamus to a specific location on the postcentral gyrus of the parietal lobe's cerebral neocortex. Right? So remember, the postcentral gyrus is in the parietal lobe, and that is the somatosensory area of the cerebral neocortex. Perception of the sensation, which includes identifying the modality, what kind of sensation it is, its intensity, and the location on your body where it took place, happens at the neocortex. The brain knows the modality of the sensation, like temperature or pressure, because the receptor that was stimulated. It knows the intensity based on the frequency of stimuli and how many receptors were stimulated at the same time. And it knows the location because the sensory neurons travel to that specific spot on the postcentral gyrus. This is such an important concept, and we call it somatotopy. It's illustrated in a sensory homunculus. So if you look up a sensory homunculus, you can Google it and you'll see it. And that's going to show you how much of the postcentral gyrus is dedicated to each body region and where on the gyrus that is. The concentration of sensory receptors is highest in the face, hands, feet, and genitals. And that's why so much is dedicated to those regions in a homunculus. 
You'll notice that the sensory neuron also synapses with an interneuron in a separate tract than the spinothalamic, right? So even though we're going up to the spinothalamic so we can perceive the pain, there's more to a sensation than us perceiving it, right? We might have emotional reactions. We might have behavioral reactions, visceral responses to sensations like fear or nausea, right? So those things might also happen in response to a sensory stimulus, not just us just knowing exactly what that stimulus was. So some of the nerve signals will not travel along that particular spinothalamic tract. They're going to go up other tracks to the reticular formation of the brainstem and the hypothalamus and maybe the limbic system. And those are the areas where we will have those emotional, behavioral, and visceral responses to sensation. Sensation from the visceral organs, like the pain experienced from acid reflux in the esophagus, they also travel to the postcentral gyrus. I want to talk about referred pain because you're probably familiar with that. And you've probably heard about referred pain when you feel something in an area of your body where the stimulus did not occur, right? So that happens too. And so a lot of times the visceral organs have sensations or pain that we feel more superficially, almost like they're coming from the skin or the muscles. And that happens because the sensory neurons from the visceral organs converge with those of the skin and the musculoskeletal structures when they reach the central nervous system. And that makes it difficult for the brain to determine exactly where the sensation's coming from. And we can perceive it as coming from a different location. For instance, inflammation of the gallbladder, which is called cholecystitis, is often perceived as right shoulder pain. We get a referral pattern to the right shoulder. Sometimes when someone's having a cardiac event, they feel pain in their left arm and hand. So this happens a lot as well. This is um, an important concept clinically as referred pain. Sometimes you'll hear the term radiating pain, and that's usually when the symptoms run the pathway of a neuron. And you might feel pain kind of shooting down your left or right lower limb. That can be radiating pain where you actually are injuring a neuron and you're feeling the pain all the way along the track of that neuron. That's different than referred pain. Referred pain is usually more of a dull ache, whereas radiating pain is usually more of like a shooting electric-like um, pain. All right, so that's a lot for general senses. Um, we're gonna get into special senses in the next episode. I want you to stay tuned for that. I appreciate you joining me on my conversation with Dr. Krista Rompalski. I want to thank her very much for her uh, joining us and talking about sensation and her experiences. That was a lot of fun. So thank you, Dr. Rompalski, once again. And uh, thank you again for supporting the podcast and for joining me for these episodes. I hope it's helping you get that B or better in A&P that you need. And if you do like it, please remember to rate the podcast and maybe put up a review and tell your friends, tell your classmates, tell your professors. The more listeners we get, uh, the more we can reach and help people out. Thank you so much. Uh, I look forward to talking to you again when we reach the episode on special senses. Good luck, and I'll see you next time. Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit is a production of Minus 55 Media. Please take the time to rate the podcast, and don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Student Help for AP. 
That's student help, the number four, AP. There's a whole lot of tutor videos on there that I think you're going to find helpful. Special thanks to my family, Bucks County Community College, and McGraw-Hill Education, where you can find Anatomy and Physiology Digital Suite, my low-cost, tutor video-based digital learning solution for anatomy and physiology, already being used at several colleges and universities.